morning and welcome to The Old School, a podcast lovingly crafted to address issues related to the American education system, uh, the characters, characteristics, uh, idiosyncrasies, the problems, solutions, insofar as we know the solutions. Good morning, Herr Dr. Bourgeois. Good morning, Herr Miller. How are you doing this fine morning? I'm doing well. You know what I was getting into this week? No. Was Casablanca. You're not going to start quoting now, are you? I kind of quote all the time. <laughs> how many how many times have you actually seen the film from beginning to end? Uh, I, it, it must be around six or seven times. Okay. I think I've seen the entire film, you know, stem to stern, as it were. That's a naval term, by the way. Thank you for that. Uh, stem to stern. <laughs> um, so so what what's your impression of, of Casablanca? Why do you keep coming back to it? I keep coming back to it. Um, I think part of it is just the exotic locale. The locale? The idea that, that some of this stuff is playing out, some of this kind of um, kind of ordinary skullduggery, you know, espionage, uh, backstabbing, what have you, all this is being played out on the backdrop of a very ancient, very enchanting, very um, historical city. And um, you also have a bunch of people in the movie that are, desperately fighting their nature. And I think that that kind of creates a, a nice little tension and I, and I kind of appreciate it. And it probably should be, should, should probably go without saying, it's probably one of the greatest scripts ever created. The fact that it is so easy to quote and you and I have quoted ad nauseum from this particular movie. I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, this is a film that, demands attention oh so many years later okay well i'm glad i know it's 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 available to be watched. And this isn't just me you like it why do you like it well i could just be crass and say ingrid bergman but it's not that simple um never is <laughs> no. <laughs> no i i think it's it's, it's really really smart mm-hmm. you know, the the little one-liners um like uh he's just like other men only more so yes i mean it's it it hits you hard because it's really direct in the in the verbiage and you know they they don't it's it's tight you know they don't Mm -hmm. waste a lot of effort uh in the narrative they 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 really get to it Mm -hmm. and uh, and it it builds to a climax pretty comfortably so it's just really natural you want you watch it and, and you it's it's a ritual that you 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 tend to not watch a little bit of it and stop. You know, I, right. I, you know, I watch it from beginning to end. Are my eyes really brown? <laughs> it's one of my favorite lines in the whole film. Are my eyes really brown? It's just that yeah. kind of quizzical look on his face, you know, kind of innocent, you know? So anyway, what about the idea of talking? Talking? Um, yeah. I think we were doing that already here, Miller. Yes, but I want to take it from the from the uh, social to the academic uh, side of things. Uh, We've just been engaged in three minutes of harmless banter about Casablanca, but uh, what if the conversation requires more sincerity, requires more thought? Um, And a lot of that has to do with what is done in an academic sense. Uh, In your experience, both in German and in music, what is the role of students speaking in class? 
I think in a, a perfect world, as a German teacher, they would just have one voice, and that was their their German voice. <laughs> um, and and sometimes I don't think I ever did this, but many German teachers give them a a German name, which would be considered racist or inappropriate today. Maybe to say. Uh, yeah. Not for Germans. My German, is, Germans do not uh, do enjoy such protected status anymore. Yeah, Kurt or Hans or some silly thing like that. No one cares about the cultural appropriation of German culture. Uh, that's right. But it, but I think in in general, the you know, I got to know my students very very well, and there was a lot of banter like we we're doing. And mm-hmm. you know, one, one of my goals as a high school teacher of a elective. Uh, was you know, help those students become who they are to develop to exaggerate their eccentricities and and be able to have a voice in in the class and I think it's unique because often I would have students for one two three or even four years and so they would find a place uh, in, in the German program and in, in the class um, so, so yeah there there was there was a lot of casual conversation. Um, even taking role, I would often give them an opportunity to say, what, what's what's going on? What do you think? Um, so I, I was pretty open to it. And, and then we get to business. Um, so I, I learned a lot about my students and really enjoyed them. Musically, I mean, I know a lot of times when you're heading up a music class, it's kind of a top-down approach. You have a particular select selection of music Maybe that, um, and again, this may differ between a music class as opposed to, you know, like orchestra or band or something like that. But, you know, within the framework of a music class, um, of course, there are conversations to be had. How do you approach a particular type of music? How do you kind of alter it a little bit? How do you make it your own? That sort of thing. Was that element of a typical music class, yours or others that you know of? Well, I think you're right. A rehearsal is different, you know, right. pretty much giving orders and they're following them right. um, and not asking any questions. Typically, <laughs> they, they, they allow that um, in the hands of the, the, the director. Um, but I did teach uh, applied music, which was a combination of listening and performing on various instruments or, or singing and, and really an exercise in composition and performance for people of various uh, varying uh, levels of, of competence musically. But the first part of the class, I think, addresses your, your question because um, we had listening activities. And usually I, I assigned a student to bring in a piece of music, anything that they wanted that was the rule was that it was important to them personally for whatever reason. And so they played it, and then the other students would simply listen. And then there would be open discussion about what what they felt, what it um, what it means, and and maybe why why that person chose it. So there's back back and forth, and then often I would follow up with something because I'm taking them through a curriculum, essentially music history, and in the same process, so I'm teaching them how to articulate, you know, talk about music. The only rule I had was you can't bring up Disney. When you're describing because you know often students they, they know what what the, their world is so they'll say well this reminds me of a scene from this disney moment and i'd say take no fantasia off. you can't be yeah. fantasia yeah i'm just saying take take that off the table how do you feel if you have any narrative what, what's your own narrative rather than walt disney's to what degree since you've been teaching a long time and in, in some of those years in a supervisory capacity beyond your particular discipline 
I have a th- I have thoughts on this matter myself. Mm-hmm. I kind of am interested in, in what you have seen. Are there particular uh, subjects that lend itself more to uh, students' participation orally, you know, verbally, you know, expressing opinions, thoughts, ideas, uh, suggestions, uh, as opposed to other subjects? And does that happen? I think your subject of history, um, there's certainly, it's a discussion and reading based course. So that I'm uh, that, that lends itself to that kind of conversation. Um, anything that, that you're kind of on the clock, like, like math and you have a, a state test and you in, in a, a real tight sequence. Um, I think the, the, the students come alive and in, in whatever way you can't really help that because their personalities, you know, become part of the class. Um, but there's also a, a portion of students, and I was like this, that you know, would prefer not to say a single word uh, except good morning, maybe, uh, and, and then leave the class. And so they're, they're not a talking head, as it were. Uh, I, I like that image where students are sitting in rows and every once in a while they're acknowledged and they talk and then they stop talking and listen. Um, but I, I, I think that about 30, 40, maybe even 50 or 60% of a, a given class, uh, they're not even talking heads. They're, they're just sitting there maybe secretly hoping not to be called on and just to get through the, the class period without incident, without embarrassment or having to talk. Was it, uh, was it John Cleese that once said that the goal of every British person is to die without embarrassing themselves? You know? <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> wow. but I think, but I think, you know, Here's a student like you, I zero in on, uh, because if a student is not keen to speak, I'm certainly not going to callously throw them to the wolves, as it were, where I will specifically and without warning ask them a question that has to deal with some something or another. Now, I have on occasion, especially with students who have, you know, modifications and, and things of that nature that may have other issues that they're struggling with. They want to participate, but they don't know how to participate. Sometimes what, I, what I've done in the past is I have pulled them aside at the beginning of class and prepped them, said, listen, I'm going to talk about the subject. I'd really like to hear your thoughts about such and such, just so they can have time to think about it, have time to kind of craft something. And then in the course of the discussion, They'll either raise their hand or I may, you know, I'm going to say, oh, I thought you, thought you had your hand up. So and so, what do you think? You know, that sort of thing and try to make it as um, as easy as possible. But I I remember an English teacher one time telling me that, you know, she she was angry because the kids were just not well, they were just they were just dead. They were quiet, you know. And she goes, I need y'all to stop being students and start being participants in this lesson. This is, you know, I don't need the education you do and you can't have it unless you can talk about it. So for me, you know, in a classroom, I demand that my students talk. And and the thing is, is that in a lot of cases, they are not asked to speak at all in most of their other classes. This is one of the things that bothers me a little bit about STEM education. You know, my, my brothers and sisters in math and science are lovely people and they're smart and they're talented and they are exactly where they need to be in front of a group of high school students or students teaching them about the wonders of math and science. However, those two subjects do not lend itself to conversation. And in emphasizing STEM, one of the things that we're emphasizing is the lack of a need for a student to express themselves academically. 
And so I'll sit there and I'll have these conversations in my, in my history class. And I'm fighting against a couple of things. First of all, they're, you know, especially at the beginning of the year, there are students who are not used to speaking. But of those, there's a bunch of them that just have not had the chance to speak and they don't have any problem speaking their mind, which goes to the second problem. The second problem is to be able to, if I'm, if I'm talking about things from kind of like an opinion point of view, you know, the second thing that I'm fighting against is that I'm not really hearing the kid, but I'm hearing the kid's friends or I'm hearing the kid's parents or whatever the case may be. This is when I start doing the devil's advocate thing. And this is, this can be problematic because uh, if a student is voicing what they think is widely held opinions, they do not understand somebody who has an alternate opinion. And I'm not expressing my own opinion because I may or may not agree with them secretly, but I think it's good for you to have to develop an answer. It's it's not enough to just have an opinion, you know, you know, you know what they say about opinions, you know? And so, um, that's the, and that's the third part. The third part is to be able to explain what you know and explain what you feel and do so in a logical, reasonable, rational sort of way. Don't dip into the waters of emotionalism. Don't dip into the waters of hyper, uh, hyperbole, um, but rather be able to express your ideas. And all of this is done, and this is what I say the very first day, all of this is done with the attitude that, well, twofold. One, people of goodwill should be allowed to disagree. I don't go for this crap where if you disagree with somebody, somehow you are everything under the book and you're castigated in the worst possible terms. The second thing is, and you know, this goes to what I think is part of the responsibility of humanities teachers, which is to teach civil discourse, um, is the idea that you talk about ideas, you don't talk about people. And so all this is a part or a component of the conversation in the classroom. And, but it has to be had. I don't care if people are uncomfortable or not, you know, and that, in that sense, my class is not a safe space, you know, yeah. I would have been rather uh, uncomfortable because I'd always be worrying what's going to set you off to turn your attention right back to me. Oh no. <laughs> no. So I'd look down or, it's like English students you mentioned, you know, in English class. Um, let's face it, a lot of students don't don't read the book. You know, if you're talking about a novel, it's they're just hoping to get through it. Or, or but a, a good teacher can tell if they didn't mm -hmm. have some <laughs> general answer about a, a passage or something, something that comes from the cliff notes. You know, or <laughs> that's right. Um, well, you, you you asked about you know being an administrator. There's something when you observe classes often. Uh, teachers who are less comfortable tend to do more talking during that time mm. because, because they're a, afraid in a way of, of the unexpected, which is anything from a student because students mm -hmm. can get you off track mm -hmm. and then you're having to listen to them to be kind, but then also to redirect. That's not what you want when there's an administrator in there, you want to be on track. So most teachers take the bull by the horns and, and do all the talking during that time. And once right. they're, out everybody has a deep breath and, and they go back to class mm. um, but but there's a a way to look at classes where you're actually counting minutes of, of who's doing the talking it's the ratio of the teacher to students as a group and and ideally there, there's a balance in there and i think what you're getting at is 
that that balance it has to do with the quality of that balance but but mm-hmm. still if the teacher is dominating the you know the all the, the talking in, in the classroom that that that's problematic um, as well and i think that happens in, in a lot of schools they're listening to not just lectures but process and, and it's just a lot of teacher talk right well i mean the the pro- and there's another issue is that when you have administrators going into a classroom you no longer are observing a classroom. You're observing a performance to some degree because the teacher is a bit on edge, maybe. Uh, The students are uncertain. And in everything that they do, when the principals are in the room are sometimes an exaggerated form of what they're like. You know, so if they are prone to answer questions, they might be overly willing to, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be. And that's tough for the teacher it's tough tough for the students and really it's tough for the administrators because there's really no other way unless you had some sort of <laughs> one-way viewing glass to kind of look at a classroom i was thinking about the same thing you know surrep- <laughs> surreptitiously you just have, have the big board and say i'm going to watch this teacher right now yeah um i think if you told everybody in advance that that's part of it they'd learn to forget about it pretty quickly yeah um, well, sometimes I've used humor, you know, when principals come in, not necessarily in an observatory capacity, but just kind of doing, doing walk arounds, you know, you got guests in the building and they, they want to see, we want to see teaching in action. Okay. Well, let's go around, you know? <laughs> and so, you know, there, I remember the last time it happened, I had a group of adults come in and the kids I saw and make, cause when I'm teaching, I'm actually facing away from the front door. So I can't see if someone's coming up to the door or not. The kids can, cause the kids are facing the front door. Right. And you can feel uh, a disturbance in the force uh, as soon, <laughs> as soon as the people walk in. And I took, kind of took a side look and noticed that there were adults in the room. Um, they hadn't said anything. So I assumed they didn't need anything. So I just kept on going, but the students were visibly different, you know, and so at that point, you know, you kind of make it a little bit of a joke. You know, I remember telling them, I said, it's a little bit like being at the zoo, isn't it? You know, um, and that that idea of trying to undermine the tension that exists there. So hopefully the kids will start acting normal. But, um, you know, part of what, the, you know, even outside of people coming in. Um, by the way, I think I stole that zoo joke from you, I think. But um, but I think even without people coming into the classroom, I think there's a bit of a performance art with students talking in class. And so the reason why I do the, the um, kind of devil's advocate is just to get them to get away from that a little bit and see if I can get an idea of what they really think, you know, or how deep does their processes go. And in the beginning, it doesn't go that far. Well, you get a real different dynamic, particularly in, in college courses, you know, undergraduates, where if you know, if there's a participation grade, I know a lot of high schools don't have that, but they'll filibuster you know, the, the, the students. And the, you know, even if they ask a question, there's a preamble to it. And then the, the professor will say, well, was, was there a question in there somewhere? <laughs> um, but, but a lot of students do think that it'll help their grade to some extent, and, and so they'll talk more than they should. Um, but I, I, I do say it, it is admirable to draw out um, students uh, who, who aren't inclined to to speak and, and to do it. And I mean, that's a, a part of being an expert teacher, I, I would say, to build their confidence with a easy question and then maybe, maybe take that easy question and follow up. And they've already 
gotten into the fray. Intellectually speaking, as far as in a person's ability to take in knowledge mm-hmm. and to be able to understand it, to internalize it, what is your understanding as to the, the kind of the qualities that public discussion within a classroom helps towards that? Because it's, it's always been my discuss, it's always been my idea that if you can if you can have a conversation, you have the knowledge, provided it's a good conversation. Um, for you and because you do you do a lot on the academic pinhead side of things of education but uh, i'm wondering to what degree have you kind of come across you know research you know that sort of thing that speaks to the benefits of, of students talking in class but uh, classical schools do this really well right um particularly as as you get to the rhetoric stage the where, where they're having discussions as, as part of the um intentionally um, the idea would be to engage in the in the content, and, and a lot of it is just to show that you understand that you did the reading, that you're with the, the teacher, so you can move on. But also to extend this uh, topic um, a, a little bit further, maybe outside of what they read. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think for for memory, you know, there, there's a, a process where the the student gets a little bit of context from the teacher, and then they do their own reading, and they come back and. There's a lot of tech checks for understanding, which many teachers, that's a big part of the class. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a little bit of lecturing in there and, and then working with the material. And so I, I think it's a natural way to do it. And a, a good teacher is doing all of that at once. You know, so you're asking questions and then and then you're also extending and have the skill to bring it back to the topic because you have to make a lot of decisions. You know, this is really interesting, but we can't spend too much time. So this internal clock. The, mm. the, the teacher has but i think that you know i don't like to get into learning styles we had a, i think we talked about sure. that um but there is something about coming at the material from, from different ways you know? yes so we yes. need to meet the student and they, they like visual so we're gonna um mm. but give them lot, lot, lots of ways but ultimately to engage with the material i think that's the most fun and it's mm. and most likely to capture their attention because it right. moves them in some ways beyond the test to, to mm-hmm. the, the subject itself. It's almost a shame. What well, is a shame to okay. some degree that you never taught history, that you never taught um, a course like that because your approach is so subtle and so quiet that I think the kids find themselves having learned a whole bunch of stuff and they, they didn't even know they knew it, you know, just because you have that way about people, you have a way with people that way. Um, For me, I always feel like I'm trying way harder than I need to, you know, but at the same time, I, I do feel like I have a pretty good sense of, you know, how to ask questions and how to draw people out with questions. Um, But at the same time, you know, to, to your point, we we do not profess an acceptance of the idea of learning styles. However, there is something to be said that any kind of classroom should include, among other things, the kids speaking, the kids talking, ruminating, you know, discussing, arguing. Um, and and again, we are certainly at a time where people need to learn how to argue well, and they need to learn how to uh, argue uh, with civility. And so my 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 efforts have multiple purposes to them, not least of which you hope the kid learns something at the end of the day. Um, I, 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 
I appreciate the compliment. I, I do wish I had, had a chance. I'd probably get all the names and dates wrong. You know? So they, they would have all this incorrect information in their heads, but they would definitely get an opportunity to talk. Um, so, so the you know t- taking that that idea of you know how how do you engage with with material? I think it does apply in in some to some extent across um, disciplines. Um, you know, I can imagine uh, teaching. English. I mean, you're, you're discussing ideas and philosophy there, and, and I've done a little bit of that. Right. But I think I think these ideas do apply, and they should apply to math and science. I mean, science of all things has a built-in extension of the conversation. Um, a lot of science classes are, are really good at the demonstration and even the experiment and the, the project, but I don't, I, maybe the better science teachers also open it up you know, mm-hmm. which is tricky because they could take it, you know, in a lot of directions. Um, but but I think what we're getting at is a teacher who's comfortable in their own skin, who's willing to hear from students. You know, that, that's a little bit rare. Often there's this mm-hmm. tension to to not hear from them, to maybe just get the right answer. And, and there, you know, that makes class easy. You know, so you call on the student, you know, they're going to get a right answer. Got it. That means I'm a great teacher. Move on. And and you have your (laughs) usual suspects, right? Round up the usual suspects, like from Casablanca, if we recall. Was that Casablanca? (laughs) It was Casablanca. Yeah, there you go. You see, get extra credit for that. (laughs) Um, But but being willing to to get a wrong answer and and then use that as an opportunity to do something really fascinating. Well, yeah, and this is part of the this is part of the thing that as a teacher you have to kind of watch for, and that is not to allow the type A personalities to dominate the conversation. You know, and I've I've had I, every class I've got like three or four kids that'll raise their hand at a drop of a hat, and I'll have to tell the class, listen, I like so and so very much, but the rest of y'all have got to speak up. You know, I want to hear from other folks too, and. At that point, usually there's a handful of kids that cannot handle the pressure that, that they, they haven't spoken and, uh, and I'm now asking them directly to speak. Yeah. And then you start getting different hands. And I always kind of follow up with the with the type A ones after class that, listen, that's not that's not about you. I'm trying to make sure that that everyone can feel as comfortable and as confident as you do mm-hmm. uh, in speaking in front of the class. And so you're already there. And I will always... I will always, you will always be a part of our conversations every day if you want to be. But I also need to make sure that these other folks, you know, feel comfortable to speak as well and can talk about whatever it is we're discussing. So, well, sometimes we learn more from bad, bad examples of teaching. And I, I had one, you know, actually, and in, in, it was my first doctoral course. So I, um, I had an impression, oh boy, the whole program is going to be like this. I'm not too excited. Um, the, the professor, it was, it was reading based. So there was a reading and then she would ask a question and, and you see about 10 hands go up, hmm. She'd write down the names of the hands. And then we'd have to hear from every one of them on the same question. And they would all go through their, their spiel. Uh, and then she'd ask another question, other, a bunch of hands go up she'd, and she'd went. So that's taking a little bit too far. And I never really wanted to participate uh, in those. It's like, I don't like to participate in group text. Right. <laughs> I usually delete it. Um, but it, it's just so uncomfortable and awkward and unnecessary. I, I think at some point you get diminishing returns, reach saturation and say, okay, we're going to move on. So I'm, I'm sure you don't do that. I don't. And it, it's interesting. 
Well, I can't say that I don't ever just because I do get group texts, you know, and so um, I'm just not inclined to text in general. And so, you know, usually in a group text somewhere about about 10 messages in, someone will say, hey, we haven't heard from Ross yet. That's a matter. <laughs> so Ross is like, call me, you know, <laughs> got a question. Um, so I, I am inherently annoyed by that mechanism. But and certainly we can have a discussion later on some other time about what constitutes communication. Uh, I'm not sure group texts do, but whatever. So um, uh, but yes, I mean, I, th- I think there that particular teacher is taking the formula way too, you know, way too far. And, and for me, it's more important to be organic. If you can be organic and if you can allow the conversation to flow freely, you have a better chance of pulling in somebody who may not be naturally inclined to speak as long as it's civil as long as they can see that I am not going to allow anyone to disparage anybody else, particularly, that's why I constantly repeat the mantra, we discuss ideas, not people. Um, I, I think if it's not organic, then not only does the conversation suffer, but so do the individual comments and it becomes less and less interesting. It, it, it becomes really dull. Um, but as a teacher, you, you get to respond to these. And I think in the class I was referencing, there, there was no response. It was just your next person. Yeah. And so not even engaging, um, w- w- which is tough. Um, but but from the, the students in, in, say, a high school class, um, you, you want to hear, hear from people in a, in a natural way. Let me ask you a question about methodology. Has there ever been a time when, when you have stepped to the side and, and and allowed students to moderate a discussion. Yes, you know, and every teacher can tell you about a time where the chemistry of a particular group of kiddos was just so that they had the capacity to hold the conversation themselves. A lot of classes don't. That's what you hope for. That's what you're driving towards. But it's not always the case. But yes, if the kids are on, if the kids are on point, and if the kids are being respectful. Your the best outcome is for you to be able to step away and not be a part of the discussion. You know, someone else should be posing some of these questions that I will use to sometimes redirect or to send in another direction or to follow up an earlier point. And, you know, why the kids can't do that naturally, not without a lot of work or preparation, what have you, that could be another discussion altogether. You know, what is it in our society where our students are not really capable of of doing that? Um, But yes, in a perfect world, and it does happen, you know, on a regular basis. Um, It hasn't happened with my kids this year yet, but um, but they're they're capable. There's there's still time. There's There's still time, yes. Um, But the ideal is for me to be able to step away and allow the learning to take place in this particular case without me. Well, and a word picture would, would be the 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 seating in a classroom you know is it set up where you're facing them and they're facing you um or is it a circle where you're one of many in there and i just wonder if if just the structure could potentially lend itself unless it's like 30 or 40 kids and you have a problem um i've always said as a teacher i want to be able to get to my students i mean i want to, be able to walk over them hand them something or right. you know get their attention and so it has to be natural seating. But I guess mm-hmm. the, the idea is that if 
if you eventually are not speaking at all, you've, it's a win and you, you just can celebrate during that time. Yes. I mean, in some cases, your classes are so big, the classroom mm-hmm. geography does not lend itself to a, a seating arrangement that encourages conversation. My class is typically in a U shape. Mm-hmm. And so they are facing one another. Um, that's partly to encourage the conversation, you know, right. because you're looking at people and you're talking to people. And uh, so, and I do that, I do that for a reason. So, it, so yeah, classroom geography, how, how the desks are set up can certainly either encourage or inhibit conversation. And and you also are in the front and you, you write things on the chalkboard. Do you still use chalk? No. <laughs> I, chalk I can pick, uh, you have a dry years. erase board. Um I could imagine here Miller being the one teacher who insists on a chalkboard with with chalk and pencil sharpeners in, in the room and no no technology, and and so they wheel in the little chalkboard in front of the, you know, the smart board wherever they're using. Um, have you I definitely don't that? need. The, I definitely don't have the need for a smart board, but I kind of do like the whiteboards. I don't. I don't need chalk. I mean, chalk was a beating. You know, you're walking walking out of school at the end of the day and you got this embedded chalk dust in your fingertips. I mean, it's just, it's a constant, I don't need to go back to chalk to, oh. to, to continue my uh, bona fides as an old school teacher. I'll just hang on to the lack of technology in my physical grade book. And will it be, will let that be sufficient for the definition? <laughs> well, I, I miss the sounds of it because just the sound of writing, you're actually striking the board mm. um, with that. And, and, it's, and you have a little bit more emphasis in the squeaky sound of, of that yeah. dry eraser. And, and eventually those things wear out and that's where it gets uh, uncomfortable because you're writing and when they're fresh, it's great. But then when you're right. getting into that gray color of the black and then you can't see anything. Um, but see, I don't often write things on the board. Well, uh, why, and, why and well, because, huh? Well, are, are you um, putting forward the oral tradition? I mean, why, why wouldn't you emphasize it with writing? Well, it depends upon what kind of conversation we're having. If the conversation is flowing, I don't feel the need to break up the conversation by writing something on the board. I'd rather the conversation continue to flow. I think as soon as I go to write something on the board, everything stops momentarily. And that can cause its own problems as well, because then then you've given the students a couple of seconds to think, well, maybe I don't want to talk anymore, or maybe I want to talk about something else or something. So there is this kind of, um, it's almost like a lessening of the pressure of the conversation when you stop and go to the board. Uh, even if you weren't talking, kids are looking, I wonder what he's doing, I wonder what he's writing. And then everyone kind of slows down and stops talking, even if they were conversing before. So um and so I, do, I try not to, if I do write anything on the board, it's usually at the beginning of a conversation or it's at the end of the conversation, something that just doesn't mess with the kind of organic qualities of the conversation. I like that term. I think kids, students want to feel like they're not in school. Right. You know, so they're just ha- having, a, having a talk and they're, they're not focusing so much on everything that's going to be tested. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, attending a, a church uh, sermon. You know, mm. and many I've I've heard of kids say, "Oh, this feels like I'm in school. I don't like it." You know, <laughs> because they're used to being talked to. I, I yeah, guess, so. and but it, so I think you're being a little bit modest. You've you've uh, become really adept at at running classroom discussions. Mm. Well, what, I still screw up regularly, so it's a well, it's a it's a it's a learning process. It's a going concern, as the Brits say. So. Yeah. So you have been embarrassed. Um, oh, well, yeah. Either something I said or 
you know, a lot of times what keeps teachers from, from engaging the students is they're worried that the students are going to say something stupid. Yeah. And I never, I, I never juxtapose those feelings onto myself. You know, I was like, that's not me. That's them. That's their legacy. They want to say something stupid in class, you know, and usually the kids are bright enough. They'll sit there and they'll lambaste a kid for saying something stupid. I don't have to say anything, you know, but um, I don't care. You know, I don't care if the kid says something dumb. Uh, it'll become a learning opportunity for that kid. So, well, I, I guess one one last thing because you you also have an administrative role. Um, what about yeah. your teachers? Do they, you know, particularly younger teachers over the years, are they able to to manage that task? It's not easy, mm-hmm. you know. And so I can I can encourage, I can maybe show away, I can have them, you know, maybe pop in and say, "Hey, we're going to be doing this. Why don't you come take a look at it?" You know. At the same time, though, um, you know, my role as a department chair is not the exalted position that some people seem to think it is, nor do I necessarily need it to be. You know, I'm not looking to have authority. But um, one of the things that and I and I will admit I have a harder time with these conversations as far as like, you know, as, as well as I can do from time to time in the classroom. Um, you know, when you're talking to other adults and you're trying to, when you're trying to have a conversation that in essence is saying, you know, the way that you're doing things could be made better. Um, so there's going to be, there's sometimes you deal with a natural defensiveness. Sometimes you deal with kind of a blase attitude. Um, seldom is the moments where you deal with just, you know, people just bubbling over with the anticipation of learning from somebody else. And so, um, so those conversations are harder to have. And I don't have authority. I can't make them do something. I can suggest, I can uh, maybe uh, elucidate, you know, the reasons why a particular method works or doesn't work. But ultimately what they end up doing in the classroom is going to be their choice. I mean, that's both the that's both a plus for the profession, uh, but it's also a huge downside for the profession because Lord knows there's people doing dumb things in a classroom. Um, so, yeah. Well, this is a, a, a um, interesting topic. I, I, I enjoyed it, um, mm. but it, it made me think uh, ahead to next week because we've actually had another guest, which would be our third guest. Um, Holy cow. Getting guests out the wazoo. Yeah. Uh, this is Dr. Matthew Post, and he's a PhD, Whoa. Associate Dean, and Assistant Professor of Humanities at the University of Dallas in the Braniff Graduate School of Liberal Arts. And that's a mouthful. But We're bringing agreed, in the big guns. Yeah. So he's agreed to, to talk with us and probably set us straight a little bit. You know, maybe he's listened to a few of these and said, you know, don't trust what they're saying. Crap. <laughs> they are, um, uh, particularly the one on the on the left side of the screen. Or, <laughs> that's you, right? Um, it's not on my left. I'm on the right. <laughs> well, so I guess I can say it now. Make sure you're on your 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 best behavior. Um, yes, yes, dear. Um, and but but that's a little tease for for next time. We hope people tune in and um, we'll learn something. I think we'll probably learn a lot more than he will. I'm convinced of that. He's just like any other man, only more so, right? My gosh. <laughs> it's another Casablanca reference it is. So, yeah. for the uneducated, uh, uninitiated out there. But uh, yeah, we, want, we've had a pretty good, we've had a pretty good string of uh, some great guests. I'm really looking forward to this as it continues on. And I'm very excited about next week. So let's do it. Well, I, do it. Um, enjoy your, your weekend and um, watch some more movies. I, I recommend the Maltese Falcon. I'm sure you've seen that as well. Yes. Yes. Um, 
It doesn't they, roll off the tongue the way Casablanca does, but still a great yeah. film. Yeah. And the other Bogart that I watch annually is Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Yes. That that never gets old. And there's we could spend a whole episode deconstructing that one. Now was uh now was he a part of uh he wasn't part of Bad Day at Black Rock, was he? That was uh no, no one's that seen was Spencer that. Tracy. Uh, I don't even know. No, about that. That. <laughs> You're getting obscure now. I'm no, sorry. sorry, sorry. That's okay, Herr Miller. Uh, why, why don't I say Auf Wiedersehen and we'll, we'll leave it at that, sir. Auf Wiedersehen, Herr Dr. Bourgeois. Auf Wiedersehen, Herr Miller. <laughs>